been a while. We are in Philippians. We're going to begin this morning by reading the inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative word of God, beginning in chapter 3, verse 8. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's words there, especially like the last three or four verses, are confusing. And so some foundational background to ease in to the new material, some of that was review from about a million years ago, (laughs) but to give some background information so that we can ease in to the new passages that we're on today in this book. The assurance of salvation. It was one of the earliest doctrines that was drilled into my head as a very new Christian. And the reason I need, note I didn't say the reason that I needed, past tense, but present tense. The reason that I need assurance of salvation is that as someone who is still trying to grow in Christ, I know the wide chasm between who I am in Christ and who I am apart from Christ. You don't have to say amen that loud. Who I am in Christ is something that we all, I hold on to by faith. But who I am, who we all are, apart from Christ, is always a present reality. And it is with me, and I give myself loads of of objective, hands-on, readily visible or audible evidence most days that apart from Christ, I, sit down, there you are, I am not the person that a holy God demands I be. I know, shock of shocks. And that little fact of life, which is true for every follower of Christ, gives the accuser, that is what Satan means, gives the devil all the ammunition he needs to start me on a road of doubt, starting to question then everything about God. And the end of that road leads me to doubting even my own salvation. 
is probably irrelevant to all of you because I know you are just so squarely in tune with the Lord and following in his every step, and you've just about achieved that reality of perfection here. Now, this doesn't relate to you, but so this is a purging of my soul, perhaps. Note the sarcasm, please. I believe that an unintended consequence of our being saved by grace through faith is that believers habitually slip into a mindset thinking somehow that God has changed his demand that his people still be holy. And all that that means. Epidemic in the church today is for Christians to live day to day more like unbelievers than like believers. And when that occurs, the Holy Spirit who has been given to every true believer, who lives in every true believer, brings, listen to my wording carefully here, brings the gift or the blessing of a sense of shame. Ah. The blessing of a sense of guilt which is supposed to push us towards God in repentance. Somehow. Somewhere along the line within our understanding of Jesus having died for all of our sins, past, present, and future, many Christians start believing that what they think, what they do, what they say, what they don't do are basically irrelevant to God. Paul addresses this in another letter that he wrote to Christians in another place called the Church at Rome, the Book of Romans. Speaking of followers who were living poorly and hypocritically in chapter 2, he, 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 he comes to the place of saying to them, you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God and I'll insert, is supposed to lead one to repentance, not give them a comfort with accepting everything and anything that the world does and all that we used to do and probably still do in part certainly when we were in the old life, so to speak. And when the Christian gets in this mindset that holy living doesn't matter anymore in an age of grace, it's easy to ignore those promptings of the Holy Spirit that is resident within the believer. And instead of conforming and allowing him to change our minds, to transform our minds, of conforming us to the image and to the heart of Christ, instead what do we do? We adopt the spirit of the age, convinced that in an age of grace, striving to be more and more like Jesus is off the table. It's nice when we see it happen to other people. We admire to those or those to whom it happens, but we are saved by grace. And so becoming more and more like Jesus just really isn't important. The only problem with that is that the Word of God differs with this. Just one example. First Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, categorically. Well, what are the real-life symptoms of taking our leads and adopting 
the views and the mindsets and the heartbeat of the spirit of the age. One very relevant example. No apologies for any toes that are stepped on this morning. When a series of books and then a movie like Fifty Shades of Perversion, I mean Fifty Shades of Grey, is released, it turns out to be a blockbuster smash hit, and that with the help of those wearing the name of Christ. Since the movies, and this has only now been like 10 days ago, I think it was the weekend before last maybe it was released, since the movie's $72 million open on the first weekend, without asking, without inquiring, without my seeking or looking, I have heard from people, they just volunteer, it comes up in conversation, numerous anecdotes about Christians, Christians, followers of Jesus, who have either read the books or seen the movie or both and loved them and have recommended them to other Christians. After the movie's debut, this is about a week ago now, I was on Facebook, and I read what I'll call a commentary, if you will, by a Christian woman who was basically defending the movie, asserting that, oh, it wasn't the pornographic elements of the movie that was the draw among Christian women. It was the love story, the unconditional acceptance in the relationship of the two key figures. The name, guy's name, ironically, is Christian and she went on to say and her point of opining was that this is something that we can use in our outreach to the culture of the day now let me quickly say something here I do get that I understand where she was attempting to come from and to go to I do it myself I use less than stellar movies because I know they are popular with the culture and unfortunately with the church. And so I use them to get touch points and things that I can talk about to one point out either the air of them or to show them the perfect way of Jesus Christ. So I get what she was trying to say. But there are certain lines that cannot be crossed by people of faith, no matter the possible good that might be able to come out of it. Did you hear that? So let me be clear. Back in the day, and I'm going back to 1968. I know, many of you were not even in existence then. But some of us were. Back in 1968, a ministry that ran for probably about 25 years, I believe, a man by the name of David Berg founded the Christian ministry called the Children of God. And this was, where else? California, of course. What was unique for this Christian ministry was their infamous method of, I didn't say famous, I said infamous method of spreading the love of Jesus. They called their brand of evangelism flirty fishing. Now, trying to be somewhat discreet, what flirty fishing was, was that the, these women Christian in the name of evangelism would go up to perfect strangers of the male type, and again, to be discreet, would pleasure them 
in any and all ways in the name of showing them the love of God. Years later, you know, sometimes truth comes from really surprising places. I'm going to read a a quote here, and then I'll tell you who it's from. We have actually convinced ourselves that slogans will save us. Shoot up if you must, oh, but use a clean needle. Enjoy sex whenever and with whomever you wish, but take precautions. No, the answer is no. Not because it isn't cool or smart or because you might end up in jail or in an AIDS ward, but no, because it's wrong. Because we have spent 5,000 years as a race of rational human beings trying to drag ourselves out of the primeval slime by searching for truth and moral absolutes. In its purest form, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It is a howling reproach. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the ten suggestions. Anybody happen to know who that is? Hmm. That was Ted Koppel in his commencement speech to Duke University in 2008. (laughs) What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the ten suggestions. Not all boundaries are negotiable. Not all boundaries are dependent upon personal conviction. Some are, to be sure. And you know what the Apostle Paul even gives us guiding principles on such conditional boundaries, if I can call them that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and even later on in the book of Romans here. But most are firmly established by God in merciful knowledge of our weaknesses and our need for fences, for boundaries. There is no worthy justification for crossing a clearly established line that God has erected for our safety. When God commanded Adam not to eat of the forbidden fruit, he didn't say, hey, give it a taste, give it a try, and then see what you think. He said, of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, You won't eat it or else. Last week, Ben introduced the vital notion of who we are in Christ. And that because of who we are in Christ, when we have received eternal life, when we have received the guarantee of heaven, we receive it in its entirety, not in bits and pieces. Well done. Where is he? He disappeared on me. It's right there. That whole theological package, he noted, is called justification. And that is when God no longer sees us in our flawed condition, but he sees us, the phrase is, in Christ. This is what Paul meant when he wrote to the Corinthians that if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. But as I said at the very outset of this message this morning, who I am in Christ is nonetheless a by-faith proposition, meaning I know God sees me in Christ, and because of that, 
old things, as far as God is concerned, are passed away, and that everything has become new. And that is how I am saved, praise God. I know by faith that what the Father sees when he looks at me in Christ is nothing but Christ's very own righteousness. And again, that is how I know that I am accepted by God who hasn't changed his view of sin. Isaiah, writing in the Old Testament, before Christ, puts it this way in chapter 61. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. Why? Because he, God himself, has clothed me with garments of salvation. He, God, has wrapped me with Christ's own robe of righteousness. This is what it means to be in Christ. But what's underneath that robe of righteousness? What is the robe covering? It's covering the current, right now at this moment, whatever that moment is, real, the real you and me. Called various things in the Bible, the old nature, the old self, the old man. Ephesians 4 talks about that. It's covering the real you and the real me with all of our warts and pimples. From God's vantage point, though, we who are in Christ are already absolutely perfect in the eyes of God. He has credited us with the righteousness of God the Son himself. And we can't improve on that. This is why our salvation is never in question. But again, remember, this is all right now here, while we are living here, this is all by faith. We believe, God, that we are perfect in his eyes because of Jesus. But while we are still here in our earthly bodies, we have to live with the reality of the, rem- of the remnants of the old self or that old nature. And it's more prevalent in some of us than in others. We're all differing at differing points on that road of maturity in Christ, of becoming conformed to Christ and adopting his heart, his mind, his values on everything and acting and behaving like him. But there you are with the present reality. And doesn't Satan love the present reality of who we are? He knows he can use it to his advantage. That's why we are warned in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He doesn't go after the one who is obediently confident in who he is in Christ. He knows that Satan has no control, no power over him. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, Satan. But that follower of Christ who is engulfed by the daily reality of who he or she is apart from Christ gets discouraged. And it's only a tiny step then to actually believing the accusations of the accuser, namely that God can't.
those thoughts frequently. Because, again, all i got to do is just look back on the past 30 seconds of my little tirade. It's like, holy cow, Crave, come on. You haven't used language like that since you were an airborne paratrooper infantry. And you're a pastor. You think you're saved, filled with the Holy Spirit. You think God can tolerate you, and this isn't the first time. And I'm like, I know, I know. It's all true. See? That's who he's looking, prowling about to get a hold of, to take advantage of. God's done with you. (laughs) There's no hope for you, so why even try? With this groundwork laid, we come to the next part of Paul's letter to the believers at Philippi, which would, I believe, it was when I read it anyway for the umpteenth time, it would be confusing if I hadn't taken the time to, again, lay this kind of groundwork. Paul's words that I read at the outset are confusing because Paul's words in verses 12 through 14 in particular sure sound every bit like he's still trying to make it to heaven and that he's advocating for for an arduous faith system which depends very much on man's efforts to get to God. But remember, the salient principle of interpreting the Word of God is allowing the Bible to interpret the Bible. If we forget that, if we ignore context, we could easily see in Paul's words a rigorous Like I said, a very arduous, strenuous Christianity that is based on human struggle, on human effort. But verses 12 and forward do not start or stop at verse 12 or verse 14. So Paul's remarks that I read at the outset have to be taken along with all of the other remarks that Paul has made in all his other letters to make sense of this. And then we have to take all his remarks in all of his letters in light of all of what the rest of God's scriptures say that would shine light on this passage. That is the only way to understand and rightly divide the word of God. Now, although it's been a long time, like I said, since we've been with Paul in this letter, Paul has been commending the Philippian believers for their practical daily reality, meaning their walk of faith. And yet at the same time, this is going back several weeks, I don't really expect you to remember it, but at the same time he was urging them, after commending them how well they're doing, to don't rest, don't stop, and continue to even strive to do better. In other words, he said, it's amazing what Christ in your lives has done. But don't sit down. Don't stop growing. Don't rest on your laurels. Remember, the standard of faith is not your faith compared to that person. It's not your faith compared to your spouse or compared to Joe Blow or Sister Gumball or whoever. we keep our eye on the right standard, we can say, as Paul says, that we have been found in Christ and we have his righteousness and we are guaranteed the glories of heaven precisely because of this. We are guaranteed the glories of heaven because of who we are in Christ, not because of who we are in our effort, in our dedication, in our commitment, or in our religious 
fervor. There's that present reality. The present reality is that we are still the same schleps with feet of clay, shining at times, radiating the glory of Jesus at times, and yet in another moment radiating the sinful fleshliness of that old nature that has not yet been given over to the Lordship of Christ. So Paul loves to talk about the promises of being in Christ and yet acknowledging that while he has all of those promises by faith, Even he has a long way to go putting into practice all that he knows he is credited to be in Christ. So after extolling the glories of being in Christ in verses 1 through 11 in chapter 3, Paul owns that he is still human. He's still a sinner, saved by grace, absolutely, but still a sinner with such a long way to go because Jesus is the standard, not Timothy, not Titus, not Junius or Apollos or any other human being. His resolve is to keep on pursuing who he knows he is by faith, being in Christ, and that the power of God will, piece by piece, become the reality of who he is in his daily walk of life. This is why he writes in in verse 12, the beginning of it, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, referring to everything that he lists in verses 9 through 11. So, again, I'm probably confusing here, but what what I'm hoping you'll see is that he's not changing his tune concerning the good news of Christ. He's not throwing a monkey wrench into the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. He is acknowledging that chasm that I mentioned at the beginning, who we are, between who we are in Christ by faith, the one who the old things have passed away and all things have become new, and the daily reality of who we are apart from Christ as we grow in maturity, becoming more and more like Jesus. So Paul writes in verses 12b then through 14, Since I haven't arrived and I won't this side of heaven, I press on so that I may lay hold for that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And brethren, I don't regard myself as as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do is forgetting what lies behind, and then he have a lot to forget and put behind himself, Reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what we have in this pericope is not Paul confused about the message of salvation, but rather we see the mandate for the quest for Christian maturity which applies to Every, every individual claiming faith in Christ. This is why he writes in verse 15 and 16, Let us, therefore, in light of what he had just said, as many as are perfect, and I, I, now let me qualify this, okay? 
the word perfect, what's often translated perfect, uh, teleos in the Greek, Greek has, in a lot of places, in vocabulary, has a lot of different words for different ideas and concepts. It's a pretty specific language. But this idea of the teleos, or the, the verb form of teleao, becoming perfect, we think in terms of Jesus and what it means to be sinlessly perfect. But that's not what teleos, that's not what Paul means here when he says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. Because if that's what he meant, it would exclude all of us, including himself. Do you see? But rather, perfect here means to be completed, meaning all of those of us who are claiming to be in Christ, we are, in fact, perfected. We are completed in Christ. But we have yet the rest of this to do, as I've been talking about. All right. As many as are perfect or complete have this attitude, the one that he was just revealing and talking about, who you are in Christ versus the reality of being apart from Christ. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained, which is what? The standard of Jesus, of God incarnate, the standard of sinless perfection. God has not changed his attitude nor his hatred for sin. Let me paraphrase verses 15 and 16. So all who are truly followers of Jesus hold fast to this viewpoint that while you are in Christ and God sees you as sinlessly holy, we know who we are in and of ourselves and how often we fail to measure up to who God says we are. So let it be our rigid goal to continue pursuing day by day the perfection of Christ lived out in our lives until the day when we are with him in person. It means seeing yourself with both, with both the eyes of God as who you are in Christ and the eyes of man seeing who you are at this very moment as you are being changed to the image of Jesus by his power of his might through his spirit. Now in verse 17, there's an interesting change that occurs. Out of one side of the apostle's mouth, He's been trying to convince us that he, like everybody else, has struggles, that he fails. He gets down. He gets discouraged. We read that in his letter to the Corinthians. He's a real person. He has no pretense about thinking that when he comes to a puddle, he's going to walk on it rather than in it. But now, given all that, Talking out of the other side of his mouth, he says, look to me. He says, no, look to me, because I am an example for you to follow. One of the most important things that any believer in Christ can do is to imitate the attitudes, the behaviors, the mindsets the convictions of someone who is further down the road of faith than you are. And anyone of any age in the Lord can do that. A few
few weeks ago, Pastor Brown was talking. He was talking about, you know, the things that you've learned and everything. And, you know, a lot of people just accumulate more knowledge and more knowledge. And we've got a lot of Christians walking around that have heads full of biblical knowledge that are this big, and they've rarely done anything with it. But whether you are six months old in the Lord or 16 years old in the Lord, you can, you can pass on what you have learned and put together. So Paul has no reservations about saying, watch him. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Again, he has no qualms about saying to people, listen to me. There are some things you can learn from me. Look at me and see what I do and imitate what I do. And in fact, Paul's going to repeat this just a few verses later on in chapter 4, verse 9. He doesn't see it as being cocky. He's already qualified his self-assessment with what he knows are his weaknesses. But he's committed to growing according to the counsel of God's word. And he establishes this practice of imitating someone who does have some things put together, and it's a safeguard to you against poor teaching and against poor application. And Paul's words in verse 18 and 19 ought to be sobering. Starting with the little word for, meaning in light of what I just said in in uh, uh, 16 and 17, many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, some translate say bellies, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Who are the many walk that he says here? Who are the many who walk as enemies of the cross? Well, verse 17 is his caution about not straying to another pattern or another gospel. So the 4 in verse 18 only makes sense to see it as those of the culture claiming to be followers of Christ. He's not talking about the world. He's talking about those who claim to be Christians, who have lapsed either into the camp in the context of the opening couple verses of Philippians, in the camp of the legalists or the Judaizers, those Jews who were were Christians, but they were demanding that people basically become Jews in order to become Christians and still follow the Old Testament rules and regulations and rituals. Paul chastises them in verse 2 of this chapter because they were encumbering people who wanted to come to Christ with all the rules and the rights of the Old Testament and of Judaism. Or on the other side of the spectrum, you have those Christians who had become what were called antinomians, anti-against namas, the law. They were against the law. They had no boundaries, no restrictions, because, woohoo! after all, they were now free in Christ. No boundaries. Anything goes because I have been saved by grace through faith. Either or both of those groups were bad examples to follow because those individuals set their minds and derived their values and all of that on earthly or worldly things with such proficiency 
that rather than being shamed by their obscene lifestyles, they celebrated them. This is so contemporary. Well, our church is open and affirming. Hallelujah. No shame. Referring to God's people in a different era. The prophet Jeremiah writes in chapter 6, verse 13. Were they ashamed? Referring to God's people. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. They did not even know how to blush, which is the natural outcome of anyone setting their minds on earthly things, which is another way of saying a loss of shame is the natural outcome of taking one's informing authority from a fallen, unrighteousness, unrighteous world rather than a holy, righteous So, going full circle now, when a significant part of the Christian community embraces something like Fifty Shades of Grey, we are clearly living what Jeremiah wrote thousands of years ago. God's people are not only not ashamed, but they have forgotten how to blush. I can't even tell you the number of young couples standing in the days when I used to stand at the doors when we were much smaller. You stand there and tell me, absolutely, with no qualms, no shame, no blushing. And some of these people were raised, I know, raised in evangelical Bible-believing churches, would stand there and tell me in the course of conversation that they are living together, they are cohabiting together. They're having sex together. And I would just say, oh, praise the Lord. Isn't freedom in Christ great? Yeah, you bet that's what I said. Verses 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Simply meaning the day is coming. Though we are all in different places down that road of Christian maturity, and none of us will ever reach that point here and now of being truly perfect in what that means, not just the teleos of completion, but perfected in the very perfection of Christ, that the day is coming when God will take his church back to himself, and we will no longer simply by faith be all of those things that we know that we are in Christ. We will in actuality be all those things. I was going to say, can you imagine? But we cannot. We cannot imagine a life where sin is any kind of sin, whatever it is. No matter where you are, who you are, no matter how much privacy you have or anything, there is no sin 
that will even be the slightest temptation. Can't imagine. But it'll be great. If you cannot really, I mean, grab on at a soul deep level of the reality of who you are in Christ by faith, your motivation with a thankful heart to God because of who he sees you to be, who you are in Christ. Your motivation is basically just has the wind sucked right out of it. And even any attempts to try and just do it because, well, boy, I was just, I don't know, I was feeling bad today. The preacher was saying stuff and, yeah, I know, I am clean. So, okay, I'm going to try. If that's your attitude of trying to clean yourself up because you're trying to clean yourself up, forget it. You've already lost But it's comprehending the reality that God the Father looks at every single one of us and says, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, and you are sinlessly holy. And it goes against everything who we are here and now. That's why it's by faith. But really understanding that, believing that, now motivate us to want to relinquish those holds when the spirit of conviction comes upon us with the gift of shame and the gift of repentance. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, (laughs) it's so simple, Lord, it's seems trite to say thank you for who we are in Christ. But Father, I also don't want to just assume that everybody in here this morning is, in fact, in Christ. And so God, I implore your spirit this morning to call, to speak loudly to any and all who are here today who truly have not received the blessing of your gift of faith to them to accept the gifts of all that Jesus deserved by being a sinless God now credited to us who believe. Lord, Send that call forth and compel all to believe, we pray. In your name, for your glory, amen.